Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here in St. George. I'd like to extend a very happy fourth feast day to those watching in on uh, the webcast. I uh, hope your feast is going well and you're doing well. Uh, my wife's grandparents are online, as is my dad from Ohio, so a happy feast uh, to you specifically. I'd like to also give uh, hellos to our members back in the great state of Oklahoma, uh, some of our members as well as some of your fellow members back home are not able to attend the feast in person for various health reasons, and so I'd like to give a, a special greetings to our at-home members back in Oklahoma. September 11th, 2001 changed the way people travel by air, and in many ways those changes have been permanent over the years since then. The U.S. president at the time, George W. Bush, one of the major things that he accomplished uh, immediately following those terrorist attacks was that he created the Aviation and Transportation Security Act, uh, which in part created uh, what we know of today as the TSA. Uh, they now provide federal authority to screen everyone coming into various airports around the nation. Uh, airport staff, uh, airline personnel, uh, and all travelers. Prior to 9-11, the screening system had not changed literally since 1973. It was a very archaic system. I remember as a kid, uh, prior to 9-11, uh, being able to walk up to airplanes, being able to walk up to the gate. All you would have to do is put some things in the scanner and walked through a very simple metal detector and you were in. You could go and watch airplanes take off and land and you could see the flurry of activity going on uh, there at the airport. Not now. Uh, now for summer camp and winter camp, we drop our boys off at the curb and uh, they go in by themselves. As parents, we can't get past security. The approach rules have changed dramatically. Knives, various potential weapons, even liquids are greatly uh, either restricted or limited. Since 2001, uh, for those that have traveled by air, uh, you also now have to take off your shoes. Uh, you can thank the shoe bomber for that. Uh, that was a transatlantic flight that was attempted to be blown up uh, with bombs implanted in one passenger's shoes. That was back in 2001. Some of you may, re may remember that. Improved technology, though, is now in place. Uh, it looks in great detail into our luggage, into our carry-ons, uh, even what we're carrying on our person and through our clothes. Not anyone can approach an airplane anymore uh, like we could back when I was a kid. The way we approach has restrictions and rules and these approach restrictions, these approach protocols, you might say, exist in all aspects of our life. How many of you have ever been to the White House? Maybe the better question is, is how many have actually been inside the White House? Right? There are rules, aren't there? You can't just go in. You can't just knock on the door and say, hey, I'd like to check the place out. There are security clearances you have to have. There's valid reasons. There are appointments. You have to be on someone's calendar. Otherwise, you'll have a 
very unfriendly meeting with the Secret Service. <laughs> we have approach rules when it comes to our national borders, schools even. If you're familiar with the school system, you might recall even some of the signs posted outside saying, visitors must check in at the office. The doors lock, perhaps, depending on what school you go to. Universities are the same way. We're here on campus of a very beautiful university here in St. George. We have the flexibility to, to walk the campus, uh, to, to travel from this auditorium to our cars and back. Has anyone tried to step into a class? <laughs> the professor would probably call you out and say, excuse me, who are you and why are you here? I don't see you on my roster. Even when we enter a highway in our vehicle, there are rules of approach. Have you ever wanted to dive into a, a, into a swimming pool? There's even approach rules for that, right? Sometimes there'll be a sign, no diving, right? And there, there's reasons behind that. And you, you honor those approach rules. Okay, I'm not going to dive in here, but oh, look, I can dive in there because the sign says so. The number is greater than than whatever it is. There are approach rules in all aspects of our life. Earlier this fall, the British monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, died. Maybe you recall seeing uh, some of the videos uh, regarding her funeral and the various events that surrounded that, that event. There were very long lines in London, uh, many miles in some cases. They were queued up uh, in order to allow uh, individuals, citizens, to be able to come forward and uh, quietly and politely give their personal farewells to the queen. Maybe you saw the one report of the man that got a little anxious and no longer wanted to follow those approach rules, and he jumped the line and sort of rushed the coffin. And he was quickly <laughs> taken down and taken out. He failed to follow the established approach protocols. Rules of approach, though, exist in all aspects of our physical lives. But yet, when it comes to religion, we seem to discount the approach rules. Sometimes we try to find the workarounds and say, oh, well, I would rather approach God in, in this way. But we should each be careful in our approach to God. And as we're here celebrating this Feast of Tabernacles, it's good for us to consider how we approach God. Because in the future, we'll be also teaching mankind at that time how to approach their God. We should be careful that we're not coming before him in ways that we deem comfortable and convenient, but rather that we come before God in a way that he wants us to. God wants us to approach him in a prescribed manner, as he commands, not as we want. This morning in the sermon, I want to examine three requirements that are needed in order to properly approach God's throne. Three requirements that we have to follow when we approach God. They are, number one, follow the rules. Number two, we have to be humble. And number three, we should have confidence in doing so. Follow the rules, be humble, and have confidence. These are 
the three points we'll look at here in just a little bit. Approach protocols, though, exist whether we want them to or not. There are some individuals that are trying to approach various things and activities in the way they want. They ignore, perhaps, national borders. They ignore, perhaps, established rules on their, their school or college campuses. Those rules exist, though. Again, whether we want them to or not, they're there. Even in Jesus' day, within the synagogue system at that time, there were rules. And depending on who you were, there were different levels of access that you could have to the temple. Turn with me, if you will, over to the book of Luke. Sort of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and, and notice this, this woman here and the restrictions that she had placed on her when it comes to her, her approach to the temple. Luke chapter 8, we're in verse 43. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of Jesus' garment. And immediately her flow stopped. She was healed. It was a miracle. By rules of this first century synagogue system, this lady was not allowed to approach the temple. She was unclean, according to the rules back in Leviticus. And the leaders were very careful with who could approach and to what degree they could approach. And this lady was literally an outcast of society. If you were a Gentile at the time, you could, you could come to a certain distance. If you were a woman, you could go a little bit farther into the temple. If you were a man, you could go a little bit farther than that. Priests even closer, the high priest himself only being allowed into the Holy of Holies once per year. This lady couldn't get anywhere near the temple. The rules of approach prevented her from being able to come and, and worship publicly. Notice verse, the last part of verse, seven, verse 47. Uh, she declared to him the presence of all the people, the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Verse 48, and he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. Jesus Christ had compassion on her. He allowed that healing to take place and he acknowledges that it was her tremendous faith that facilitated that. The phrase here in go in peace is curious based on Mr. Foster's message yesterday. There was a means of reconciliation that was made here. She was restricted from going to the temple, restricted in her worship. The rules of approach did not allow her to get close. But through this healing, she was able to be reconciled, you might say. And she was allowed to approach at that time then the temple to bring her various gifts and, and offerings. 
This to me is more than just a story of a miraculous healing. And it's certainly that. The, the level of faith that she had was, was incredible. To simply have the faith that all I need to do is touch his garment and, and I'll be healed. This lady was given the approach. She was given the, the opportunity to approach and to receive reconciliation. Let's go forward to the book of John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 44 is a, is a great memory verse. If you don't have this verse memorized, this is a great one to, to, to recite and to be able to keep in your memory. The rules of approach are, are embedded in here. And Jesus Christ specifically tells us that there is an approach protocol to God the Father. Notice verse 44 John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Modern society has, has this all wrong, don't they? Modern society thinks that they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ if, if they want it, if, if they deem it worthwhile. If it's something they desire, they can sort of claim this relationship with the God family on their own accord. And yet Jesus Christ here simply says, you, you can't even get to me unless the Father calls you, unless the Father extends that invitation to you. Not approaching within the established protocols here, meaning the Father calls then you have access to Jesus Christ's example. You have access to his sacrifice. You have access to all the beautiful things that come from that sacrifice. He becomes then the author and finisher of your faith. None of those things are possible unless the father initiates it. Unless the, the father initiates that, that special invitation. And of course, then you have to respond to it. And those approach protocols then continue to roll out. We can't just claim Jesus Christ because we've said a few things and we like that he did away with all the laws. You might recall Matthew chapter 6. Well, this is where one of two places actually where the model prayer outline is given. Once the Father calls, there is a way to communicate. We do it through the authority of Jesus Christ and we can pray directly to the Father. It can happen no other way. I appreciate the teen Bible study uh, earlier in the feast on this, on this topic of how we approach God's throne, how we, how we pray to him and what manner we pray to him. So let's discuss these three requirements as we consider very carefully, consider our approach to God. Number one is follow the rules. Follow the rules. Consider for a, minute, for a minute the last time you were in a vehicle. Maybe it was on your way here this morning to church. The last time you were in a vehicle. There were rules that you had to follow in order to get safely from your lodging here to church. When the rules are broken, one of several things could happen. You could get some red and blue lights in your rearview mirror and you could have a nice conversation with the police officer. You could end up in an accident. 
when we break the approach rules, then things happen. There are consequences to that. Let's have a little, uh, little intera- interactivity here just for a minute. How many do not know the rules for parallel parking? Parallel parking is one of those things that we don't do a whole lot in, in our world today. Maybe if you go to a, a, a downtown center, maybe there's some parallel parking. Does anyone not know how to parallel park a car? <laughs> okay, there are some honest folks, thank you. The balance should be everybody else then, right? Raise your hand if you know the approach rules for, for parallel parking a car. Okay, keep your hands up. Now, how many of you can do it? Right, I'll keep my hand up. I, I have this bit of pride in me that I'm still working on, but I think I can parallel park very well. We have a very old Yukon XL, and I love when I get to parallel park that beast of a vehicle. I'm still repenting of that. <laughs> Even with something simple like, like parallel parking, though, there, there, are, there are rules for that. There are approach rules, right? You see the spot you want. You go past it. You sort of stop parallel to that car in front of where you want to park. There's things to watch for as far as what direction you turn your wheel and when and when you go straight and that sort of thing. These are, these are approach rules. And if you follow those rules, if you approach that parallel parking opportunity correctly and by following the rules, then you look like a pro. You look like you know what you're doing. You're happy that you're parallel parking right next to that outdoor seating area of the restaurant you're going to as you wave to everyone who's gawking. <laughs> but if you don't follow the rules, what happens? You know, you're in, you're out, you're here, you maybe bump the car behind you accidentally, you get out of the car, and you're like, oh, whew, glad that's over with, and then you look and you're you know, three feet from the curb and you're sideways. From God's perspective, though, obedience to his rules is mandatory. He wants us to obey him. He needs us to obey him. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, let's read of something very dramatic that happened uh, near the beginning here of, of David's official reign as king. Second Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, who is called by the name uh, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. Verse 6 is the dramatic verse here. When they came to Nashon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand. 
to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his heir and he died there by the ark of God. Here you have this hugely celebratory event. Uzzah was trying to do what he thought was right. God doesn't need us to protect his ark though. He's a majestic God, but he didn't need Uzzah to stick out his hand as the oxen stumbled. We, we read this and we, we try to justify Uzzah's actions. How, do, how, does, how does this sort of make you feel? Right? You, you, maybe, maybe the blood's starting to rush. You're like, why, why did God strike him? Right? He was trying to protect the ark, so as the oxen stumbled, you know, the ark wouldn't fall. It, it seems noble, doesn't it? Sometimes our approach rules can be justified by us. We can say, it's okay if I worship God this way. It's okay if I, if I don't go to church today. It's okay if I skip on my tithes. It's okay if fill in your justification. So how do you feel about Uzzah's death? Does it kind of ruffle your feathers a bit? The context here is very celebratory. David, in the previous chapter, defeated the Jebusites. Uh, they had control of Jerusalem, and David goes in and, and conquers the city of Jerusalem, sets, up, sets it up as a stronghold. The Philistines get wind of it at the end of chapter 5, and they, they have two different series of attacks. And David, with God's blessing, wipes them out, defeats them. What follows then here at the beginning of chapter 6 is David decides it's time to move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so during this move then, the, the Ark is put on a, on a cart and it's pulled by some oxen. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 Exodus 25, notice verse 10. Here are the instructions for uh, the construction of the ark. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. It gives its size and uh, dimensions. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Verse 12, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings on one side, two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Verse 14, you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, that the ark may be carried by them. Verse 15, the poles shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Right? God told them how to carry it. God told them how to approach that ark and how to transport it. He gave them the protocols. He gave them the rules. Now how do you feel about Uzzah's death? He failed the rules, didn't he? He disobeyed. By extension, the priests allowed it. David, I'm quite confident, knew about it, allowed it. Uzzah participated in it, but Uzzah was the one that reached out his hand. Uzzah was the one that 
took hold of it to try to stabilize it. We can't just come to God any way we decide. We can't decide ourselves how to worship God. We can't decide for ourselves how to honor God or which laws to keep, which ones we can twist, which ones apply today but not tomorrow. Disobedience to God's law is definite and it carries very serious penalties. Number two, the second requirement is to be humble. Number two, be humble. Our approach before God requires a humble and teachable attitude. Fasting is a most excellent way to to sort of check our attitude. But fasting alone doesn't make us righteous. Let's go back to the book of Zechariah. Let's look at an interesting series of events here that the prophet records for us. Zechariah chapter 7. Here in Zechariah chapter 7, God speaking through the prophet poses this interesting question to the people. Notice verse 5, Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, right? The, The leaders here are not excluded. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh and uh, the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me, right? There's that extra emphasis. Did, did you do it for me? For me, implying from God's perspective that he didn't acknowledge those fasts. Sure, they went hungry. They went without food and water. But, but he poses the question to them, did you really do it for me? Did you really do it to me for the right reasons? Did you ab- attempt to approach me through fasting in a way that would be pleasing to me? Or did you think that I would just sort of go along with your idea? Chapter 7 and 8 discuss these various fasts that the Israelites had had become to recognize that they started to to keep. There was one on the fourth month. This is the day when the city walls were breached. 2 Kings 25 talks about that. The fast of the fifth month was when the house of God was destroyed by fire. Also 2 Kings 25. The fast of the seventh month was the, the anniversary of the assassination of one of their kings. The fast of the 10th month was the day when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. These are four fasts here that that Israel had sort of adopted into their their worship. And they fasted on these four days. Now, all four of these events, I think you would agree, are terrible things to fast, to fast about. These are historical events in their life that had occurred, and they were sort of fasting to recall those events and to keep them fresh in their minds perhaps but God poses this interesting question here in chapter 7 and verse 5 are you doing those for me 
Are you doing those to draw close to me? Are you doing those to approach me in the way that I want? Or are these sort of things that, that you have come up with, your own man-made fasts? Were these really for me, God says? He answers with essentially, no, they were not for me. They were not for me. In Zechariah chapter 8, we see a, a beautiful future being portrayed. I would encourage you to read Zechariah chapter 8 at some point before the end of the feast. It's a beautiful chapter, and it talks about Jerusalem during this millennial time frame and, and the events surrounding New Jerusalem and, and what the people will be doing and, and, and how they will be behaving. It's a, it's a beautiful forecast of this very millennium that we're here celebrating during, these feast, the, during this Feast of Tabernacles. And chapter 8 and verse 18 here of Zechariah 8, these four fasts are mentioned. And these fasts then become used in a way that is pleasing to God. He mentions these four fasts, but not in terms of this piece of history that Israel was trying to draw attention and recollection back to themselves, their, their own sort of version of approach. God says, you'll do these things now with joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. We, we, in, the, in the millennium, people will be fasting to God for the right reason. They'll be approaching God's throne through a fast for the right purpose and in the right way. God tells us how to approach him in a fast. Isaiah chapter 58 is a, is a great chapter to read the next time you fast. Hopefully it's before next day of atonement. The next time you fast, you should be sure to read Isaiah 58 because it tells us specifically how we should approach God during that time period, during that time that we've set aside to fast and why we fast. The approach rules are all laid out. And if we choose to fast according to that, God will honor that fast. If we choose to fast for our own reasons, and Isaiah 58 talks about those as well, if we choose to fast for our own reasons, then we've missed the approach. We've tried to jump the fence. We've tried to rush the coffin. And it's not going to work out. We end up just going hungry that day, being thirsty. Peter and James both make the statement that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God wants us to have a humble mindset. Humility is something we can work on throughout every day. It's not just something we work on when we fast, although that's an excellent time to focus on humility and praying and asking God to help us in our attitude. James 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, 5, both of those make that statement that God doesn't want the proud. The proud do not approach God in the way that he has ordained. But the humble, they understand the approach protocols. They, they know how to come before God. They know what God expects. And they're willing to abide by those protocols. God requires a humble heart for those who have 
been invited to have a relationship with him. You might recall the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector back in Luke chapter 18. Right? The Pharisee was very proud. He thumped his chest and he thanked God he was not like the other guy. Tax collectors in that day were sort of low on a totem pole, you might say. They, they, they were low people within society. Typically, they would extort money. They would sort of cook the books, you might say. They, they were not well regarded. They had authority and they sort of took that and, and did a lot of um, evil things to the, to the people of the day. They, they weren't always uh, good in the roles that they had been placed in. But the Pharisee here is who Jesus Christ calls out. Because the tax collector had that humble attitude. He was concerned with his own spirituality. He was concerned with his own relationship with God. He recognized himself as a, symbol, uh, as a sinner. He had that, that humble approach. The Pharisee, on the other hand, was not. He was proud and thanked God that he was so righteous and, and so good. Number three, the third requirement, have confidence. Have confidence. Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. And let's begin reading here in verse 14. We'll read 14, 15, and 16. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. In the margin of my Bible, I have written, hang in there. Right, hang in there. I appreciated Mr. Tom's sermonette earlier. Hang in there. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't, don't let go what God has given you. The approach protocols that God has set in place are not too difficult. You don't need to send some sort of emissary over to, to ask, you know, some question. There, there's no go-between. With your calling and with your commitment to God through baptism and the receiving of the laying on of hands and God's spirit living and working in you through Jesus Christ, you can go right to God. Those approach rules are made known to you. And we have this great high priest, verse 14. He has been resurrected. He has received the authority that God has given to him. He's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, don't give up, Paul writes. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast to that conviction that you have. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He knows our life. He knows what it's like to, to be human, to persevere through the pressures of our weak fleshly nature. He, he did that. He did that successfully. He did that without sin. With those two verses as background, then verse 16 is very powerful to us. Let us therefore, right? Remember when you see the word therefore, it's always in context to the verse or verses before that. So with the context of Jesus Christ as our high priest, 
Jesus Christ as the one who God has resurrected and brought back to his throne. Jesus Christ as our high priest who, who understands what it's like to battle our fleshly natures and to fight sin. With that as background, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God has called you. He's working with you. Many of you have responded. Many of you have, have accepted that calling, are baptized and working on your sins each and every day to become more like God. And we have access here. We have the protocols. We know how to approach. And we're to do so with confidence, not with sort of scaredness or, you know, kind of cowardly and kind of shaking. God, if you're up there, no, if God has called you, he is listening. He is involved in your life. Scripture tells us he knows how many hairs are on our head. God knows what's going on. He understands the trials and the situations that you're facing. He knows the sins that you want to overcome, that you're battling to overcome. And so there's a confidence here that we can approach God and say, I need help. Help me in this situation. Give me the courage. Point me to the scripture that will help me get through this, this difficult day. Verse 16 is a beautiful verse for the people of God. Let us come boldly to the throne. We have the opportunity to come into God's presence, and it's by faith that we make that approach. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in his sacrifice. It's by faith in the calling that God has given to us. It's by faith that we approach. Paul tells us here to do it boldly. This is not a, a demanding sort of boldness. This is not an arrogant boldness. Boldness is the confidence of what Jesus Christ allows Boldness is the confidence that God has called you, that God is working specifically with you, that he's laid up a crown for you, that he's preparing a new name, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the confidence of what God is doing in you. That's the boldness that's mentioned here in verse 16. Notice the why. The why is embedded in here as well. And the why is always important to consider. Why do we come boldly? Again, at the end of the verse here, it's to obtain mercy and to find grace. Albert Barnes makes this statement. We come where a sufficient sacrifice has been offered for human sin and where we are assured that God is merciful. We may therefore come without hesitancy or trembling and ask for the forgiveness of what we need. This is the why. We come boldly before God so God can be involved in our life, so we can acknowledge that we need him, that, that we need forgiveness of sins, that we need strength day by day. We need those mercies to be renewed each morning. Grace here is not a, a one-way flow from God to us. We don't come boldly before God's throne to say, I'm not going to do anything today. I need you to do everything. Now, this is not what grace is. 
Grace is not a one-way flow from God to us, but rather it's a reciprocal exchange. We repent, God forgives, we ask for more of his spirit, he gives us increased understanding and knowledge, we find more sin, we repent, we strive, we battle, God helps us, we pull through, God gives us a trial, we're successful in that, we submit ourselves to him. It's a beautiful exchange. I'd like to refer you to the United Church of God's Grace booklet. It's an excellent booklet. If you haven't read that, find a copy, get a copy, read it online, pick up, a, pick up the, the physical booklet. The church has a very good booklet on this topic. And it's this reciprocal exchange that, that we understand grace as. And so we come boldly before the throne of grace. We come boldly before a God who is deeply invested in you and me. And we have our part to play and God has his part to play. And when those two parts work together, it's a beautiful relationship. And we can have the confidence then to go to God and say, here's what's on my mind. Here's what I'm striving to overcome. Here's what flaws I see in my life. Let's go over to Philippians uh, chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We have this confidence in our relationship because of what Paul writes here. Philippians chapter 1. And let's go to the second half of verse 6. I just want to pull this statement out for you. If you wonder about your conversion, if you approach God's throne in some sort of, with with timidity, consider this verse. This is why we can come before God's throne with boldness, with confidence. Notice Philippians chapter 1 and the last part of verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. Has God called you? Yes. Have you responded to that calling? For many of you, yes. For some, you're you're studying, you're working toward baptism, you're on that road. But God has begun something in you that is truly unique, truly special. He who who has... begun a good work in you, will complete it. Brethren, we should have confidence to come before God's throne. We should be able to go there boldly and through faith and and work diligently at that reciprocal exchange of a relationship that God wants to have with us. Because God's not going to call us and just kind of drop us off. Right? Let me just drop you off. I'll extend this calling I'll give you a little bit of insight, but I'm just going to drop you off over here. Then I'm going to back away. Let's see how you do. Right? This is not the God we worship. This is, not, this is not our God that may be a God, lower G, but it's not our God. Our God is, is intent on finishing the work that he has started. And so because of that, we, we can have the confidence And so when we approach God's throne, this is one of the requirements. We approach God's throne with boldness, 
with confidence, knowing that since he called us and has begun something in us, he's going to also finish it. So with these three requirements in mind, obey the rules, be humble, and have confidence, let's talk just for a few minutes about how we apply them in our life. How how do we apply these things? There's an ultimate wedding that you and I are preparing for. It's going to be a beautiful wedding. You might say it's the ultimate wedding of all eternity. The marriage of the lamb to his bride. Let's go over to the book of Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And notice this parable here of the wedding feast. You and I are embedded in this parable somewhere. There's several groups that are mentioned. We're we're in here. Let's notice just the precursor here, the introduction. Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. That marriage is being prepared. That marriage is being arranged. Verse 3, sent out his servants. Many people rejected it, though, and said, no, thanks. I'm not interested in that marriage. I'm not interested in those approach rules. Nah, I don't like the way that's worded. Nah, I don't think I want to do that Sabbath thing. No, I like eating different kinds of food, a wide variety of foods. No, no, thanks. No, thanks. Some of the servants were, were beat, were beaten. And finally, this, this king tells his servants, go out and go, go out into the countryside. Find the, the bad and the good. Find those who struggle. Find the weak and poor and bring them in. And we see at the end of verse 10, the wedding was filled with guests. There is this magnificent wedding that was being planned, this great wedding by the king. And there were many who received the invitation, and there were a lot of rejections. I don't like the approach rules. I want to do it how I want. I want to be able to go off and bury my my father first, then I'll come. I just acquired some land. I want to go work that land first, then I'll come. They're they're, they're trying to change it, aren't they? They're trying to decide for for themselves how to come before God. The imitations have gone out. The question for each of us is simply, are we living a life worthy to enter this great, ultimate wedding. But as we see here in this parable, the approach is not however we want. Growing up, the expression that was told to me over and over as a kid was, you can't get into the kingdom on someone else's coattail. Right? Maybe that's sort of become an idiom within, within the church over the years. But the saying is true. Right? God wants a one-to-one relationship with each of us. 
If our spouse, if our parent, if our grandparent, if our friend is faithful and, and, and approaching in the way that God has established, we can't sort of sneak in. We can't just sort of ride in on what they are doing. God expects obedience. He expects humility. He wants to see repentance and growth in our life. He expects us to have a, this, this outpouring love of concern. He wants to see sacrifice in our lives. This is the proper approach necessary to receive the white garments in order to participate in this great wedding. God wants the relationship. He wants the reconciliation. He wants to be one with you. Hold your place here. We'll come back. But let's go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We sort of jump ahead to the fulfillment of that parable that Jesus Christ was describing, you might say, in abstract terms. Notice Revelation chapter 19 and verse 6. Revelation 19 verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints through the approach rules this verse describes us if we approach in the right way if we're consistent in our relationship with God then we can be a part of verses six seven and eight we can participate in that wedding we can hear the words that Mr. Toms mentioned earlier in the sermonette we can hear those phrases given to us. Let's go back to Matthew 22, if you're still holding your place there. Matthew 22, notice verse 11. This is, should be sobering to us because we as humans, we like to see if we can skirt the rules. We like to see if we can sneak in the back door. We like to see if we can get the 13th donut for the price of 12, Right? We, we like that. We like to see if there's some way we can work the system to even just a small advantage. Right? How many times have you been pulled over for speeding? You roll down the window and you just own it. Yep. I was doing 80 in the 75. Here's my license. Right? No. Right? Ah, well, maybe. Or, you know, I didn't see the sign. Or uh, the, the, the odometer was off. The speedometer was off. It wasn't right. Notice here verse 11, very sobering statement for us. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can't just jump the line and rush the coffin of Queen Elizabeth. We can't just skip security and go right to the airplane's gate. We can't just drive our car however we want. 
there are approach protocols. A wedding crasher defined is simply a person who attends a wedding that they have not been invited to. Sometimes they, they don't even know the, the, the bride or the groom. They have no invitation, no relationship. They have no authority to approach. And so we see an individual here that tried to receive the reward without following the proper approach. I'm told actually at airports that even helicopter operators, helicopter pilots, have to still follow the same approach protocols as airplanes, even though they can go straight up and, you know, make very dramatic movements, they still have to sort of follow the same approach lanes, you might say, as, as airplanes. Here we have an individual that's trying to skirt that. Well, I'm a helicopter. I'm just going to come in however I want, whatever direction I want, land wherever I want. Here in verse 11, we see a, an individual who did not follow the approach but yet they were trying to receive the reward. They were trying to attend the wedding. God will not allow just anyone into the marriage feast with his son. We can't jump the line. So the question for us is, are we preparing the right garments? Are we willing to abide by the approach protocols that God has put in place? Are we willing to do that? You know, the, the word righteousness, we've mentioned several times here, uh, the individuals in the first part of Matthew 22 are likened to having a certain garment on. That garment is given to them because of their righteous acts. We read that back in Revelation 19. Righteousness is a sort of a fancy way of just simply saying a right way of living. It's a right way of living. Are you righteous? Well, do you live the right way? Do you live God's way of life? Is that what's in, in your heart and mind? Is that your daily actions? Are you righteous? Are you striving to live a right way? It's opposed to a self-righteous way of living. Self-righteous is still a right way, but it's according to the self, right? I deem what is right. And so I'm self-righteous because I have deemed the way that I will go. There's a way that seems right to a man. Its end is not profitable, but it's right to him. That's self-righteousness. God wants us to have his righteousness, a, a, a right way of living according to his laws and rules and the beautiful way of life that he has called us to. So are we living by God's approach protocols? It's sort of the, the simple overriding question for today. Are, are, we, are we living by those approach protocols? Every, every seven days, God gives us the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a weekly refresher and a focus on how to be righteous, how to live a right way of living according to God's standards. God doesn't want us to approach him like other gods. We can go back quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 1. It 
It's some powerful language here as, as we're called out of society, as we attempt to live and work in society but not be a part of society. This is a powerful section for us to consider. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess. Verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their pillars, burn their wooden, their wooden images with fire. Cut down the carved images of their gods. Destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Some of you have come out of other religions, other ways of, of, of going to church. God says, get rid of that. Those approach rules are, are, are incorrect. They're, they're man-made, they're pagan, they're, they're anti-God. And God says here, destroy those things. Don't approach me like you would these other gods. Put away the liturgy, put away the music, the customs, the ornaments. They can't be used, God says. I'll tell you how to approach, and you approach me that way. First Peter chapter 1. Let's go there. First Peter chapter 1. God's ultimate goal for us is to, to be like him, to have a relationship with him to strive on a daily basis to implement Jesus Christ's life and example in our life, to, to, to model ourselves after that. 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 13. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he has called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As the one who called you as holy, we also should be holy. Right? There's a way to be holy, and it's not according to whatever we think is right. That, that way will surely lead to destruction. God says, as I am holy... His people are to be holy. You and me are to be holy. We're to have that relationship. We're to have that, that goal of approaching God in the proper prescribed manner in order to receive eternal life. This statement here is not just in the Old Testament. The Bible is unified. We've split the Bible into Old Testament, New Testament. But the Bible is one book. It is unified. Peter reiterates the approach here. Going all the way back to Leviticus 11, he's drawing similar language from Leviticus chapter 11. And he says, as God is holy, his people are also to be holy. Even the new Jerusalem will have approach rules. If you turn with me to Revelation 21, we see as we come through this, this festival, the seven-day festival, and as we approach the last great day when we picture some of these events taking place. 
here the New Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. It's a beautiful time. It's a beautiful time for those who learn and follow the approach requirements that God has. But notice verse 8. There will still be those who don't want to follow the proper approach. Verse 8, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The approach protocols will exist throughout the millennium. And coming into the time of the new Jerusalem, they will still exist. There will still be a way to approach our God. There'll be a way for mankind during the millennium to approach their God. People who approach correctly will have access And individuals who reject the approach and sort of want to do it their way and in their time and how they deem it correct will will not have that access. In conclusion, there's perhaps other examples of good approaches and bad approaches that you can think of uh, in the Bible. Nadab and Abihu and Leviticus 11, they offered inappropriate sacrifices and profane fire. It was a failed approach. Even Moses in Exodus chapter 3, remember he was told to take off his shoes. God wanted that, that intimate relationship with Moses. Take off your shoes, Moses. I don't want anything between us. The ground is holy and put your bare foot here on this ground. The approach was specific. God wanted a direct connection with Moses. Brethren, our roles in the millennium will be teaching mankind how to approach God. And this includes his commandments. It includes his Sabbaths, his holy days. We know from sections of scripture like Zechariah 14 that even in the millennium, some people will reject the approach. Ah, I don't want to go up to the feast this year. For whatever reason, the king of Egypt might say, ah, not, not this year. The kings from the east won't want to approach. They'll, they'll come to make war. But you and I get to teach the approach. We get to teach people about our God. We get to teach them about his way of life, his beautiful way of life that's full of blessings and opportunities A system of physical sacrifices will be re-implemented as mankind learns what sin is and how that sin separates them from God. Approach rules will be in place as we represent a kingdom of priests of our God. We'll teach people how to approach, how to have the opportunity to learn from their God.
Brethren, God wants a relationship with mankind in the future. He wants that. The end of the book talks about that. Talks about how God desires for all men to come to repentance. He wants a relationship with everyone. But you and I have the opportunity to practice that approach now, today. We have the opportunity to learn how to approach. So in the future, we can teach others how to approach and know our God.